from our own eye. And remember that in this passage, in Ephesians 2, Paul is talking about believers. He's he's talking about what they were by nature. None of us, even as believers, is in a position of superiority to anybody else in the world. Apart from God's grace, we are just like them. We have this innate tendency to relativize and rationalize our sin. We try to set ourselves up as our own masters. We're all needy. We all need God's grace. And so what do we do about that? We confess our need. We acknowledge our sin. We admit that we are no better than anyone else. At the same time, for those of us who do confess Christ as Lord, there is something we have that unbelievers do not. This brings me to my second point, the newness of God's grace. Now, you'll notice in, um, in this passage of, uh, written by Paul, he uses three different verbs to talk about what has happened to believers who have received grace from God. Now, I'm going to give you a very brief Greek lesson. I couldn't avoid it. You know, I am, I am kind of a language geek. I, I have to bring it up. There are three past tense Greek verbs that are used in this passage, and they all share the same prefix. Now, it's kind of like we know that in the English language we use the prefix co, right? C-O. Think of, think of all the words that we use in English that begin with the prefix co. Cooperate. Coincide. Coexist. What does co mean? It's when two things are doing something together, right? Greek has a prefix just like that. It's soon. And we see this prefix used with three different verbs within this portion of Scripture. The Apostle Paul says that we are made alive together with Christ. We are raised up together with Christ. We are seated together with Christ. Perhaps a better translation would be then we are co-enlivened, we are co-raised, and we are co-seated. These are the benefits that we receive if we follow Christ, if we put our faith in Christ. And what this shows us is the relationship between God's grace toward us and the merit of Christ. It shows us that each of the gifts that we receive by grace was first a reward that was earned by Christ. This is how we see redemption accomplished, wedded with redemption applied, historia salutis and ordo salutis. Christ's resurrection becomes our resurrection. Christ's ascension becomes our ascension. Christ's session becomes our session. We are, even now as we speak, seated in the heavenly places because we are united spiritually to Christ. It is through the Holy Spirit that we receive these benefits by being united to Christ. And this union transforms us from the inside out. This is what we call regeneration. Now, I have uh, a lot of students who are uh, big fans of this uh, popular BBC television show. You might be familiar with it, Doctor Who. It's kind of bizarre. It's not for everybody, but I found it to be pretty entertaining. I'll give you the, the basic premise. You have this uh, doctor. You don't even know what his name is. He just goes by the doctor. And he's an alien from a foreign planet. And uh, he travels around through time and space in this blue phone booth. It's actually a police box. And he brings these companions or friends with him. And they go on these various adventures throughout the universe. But he has this special power as well. 
And it happens like once every couple seasons or so. Where at some climactic moment in the storyline, he sacrifices himself in order to save his friends. And he loses his life. And yet he has this power within him. Regeneration. And you see it happen. His body starts to glow. The room starts to shake. He starts to lift off the ground. And then in this brilliant flash of light, he comes back to life in a completely new body. I think this is a a clever ploy by the producers to uh, bring in a new actor every couple years or so to keep people's interest in the show. But that's how this show defines regeneration. I think if we could visualize what regeneration would look like, that's a great picture of it. But the spiritual truth behind regeneration is far more profound. In fact, there are layers of meaning behind this concept of regeneration as we find it described in Scripture. In fact, I think we can use the term regeneration in three different senses. We see it used in three different ways throughout Scripture. For example, in Matthew 19.28, Jesus himself describes the regeneration of all things. He's talking about that day when he will come back and make all things new. He will eradicate sin and death and decay And he will restore all of creation to the way it was intended to become from the very beginning. That's regeneration on a cosmic scale. That is the broadest definition of regeneration. New heaven and new earth. There's a narrower definition than that as well. This narrower definition refers to the sum total of the Christian life. As we walk in God's grace, as we pursue Holiness. We see this described in James 1.18, 1 Peter 1.23. It's the whole of the transformed Christian life. Or in theological terms, we also call this sanctification. And there is a third yet narrower definition for regeneration. This is what we read about in John chapter 3. You might be familiar with the story of Jesus and uh, Nicodemus, the Pharisee, the member of the, the Jewish council, the Sanhedrin. Nicodemus visits Jesus at night. And Jesus says to him, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is first born again. It's a bizarre concept if you think about it. But that concept, that that idea of being born again, that is what we mean by regeneration at the narrowest level. This is talking about the beginning of the Christian life. That moment of transformation where you are transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, to the kingdom of God's grace. When the Holy Spirit works within your heart and converts you, produces faith and repentance within your heart so that you are justified by God's grace. That moment is regeneration, being born again. Now, if your faith is in Christ, the experience of a new birth is yours to claim as well. Now, for some people, they can look back on their life and they can see a decisive moment, a critical moment in their past where they can see where they were transferred from death to life, where they were born again. The Apostle Paul himself had such an experience, the story of the Damascus Road, as we read about in Acts chapter 9. He was formerly a zealous Jew persecuting the Christian church. But on the road to Damascus, he has an encounter with the risen Lord Jesus who completely transforms his life and gives him a new identity and a new calling. And it's dramatic. It's climactic. It's miraculous. Some people have an experience of regeneration like that. My own experience was very similar to that, too. Maybe not quite, you know, flashing light, you know, visible encounter with the risen Jesus. I can't claim that, unfortunately. 
But there was a decisive moment in my past that I can look at where I can say, yes, B.C., then A.D. I was walking in rebellion. I even claimed to be an atheist at one point in my life, you know, in my early years in the Navy. But the Lord was working in my heart and transformed me. Ten years ago, I can look back on that time and I can look at the changes that God worked within my own heart. And he gave me a new identity. Now, some of you, I don't know where all of you are coming from. Some of you may not have yet had that experience of regeneration. You may be questioning whether or not you are still walking in darkness. If that is you, I would encourage you to reflect on the grace of the gospel as Paul describes it within this portion of Scripture. Think of what the Lord has done for you. The offer that he presents to you to receive a new identity, to receive a new life. Others of you, on the other hand, perhaps you do confess Christ as Lord. You you believe in the promises of Scripture. But you can't look back at a point in your life where where you can say, ah, that was my moment of conversion. Perhaps you cannot remember a day when you did not confess Christ as Lord. You may have been raised in the church your entire life, and that is all you know. And for you, there's nothing new about grace. That's all you knew from the beginning. Well, if that is your experience, then praise the Lord, because you have been protected from the destructive consequences of a sinful lifestyle apart from grace, apart from the church, apart from the gospel. And that is something that you can celebrate. Don't think that there is something missing from your Christian experience because you don't have a BCAD testimony. But I have noticed when I talk about regeneration with my students, a lot of them are getting to the point now where they're, they're starting to panic a little bit. They're starting to wonder whether or not their faith is authentic. They're starting to wonder whether they have truly been born again or whether they're just following the religion of their parents. They grew up in the church. It's all they knew. Of course, they confess the right truths, but is it really their own? That's a legitimate question. I think that's a question that we all need to ask ourselves. And I want to offer you three different things that you can look at, three things to reflect on to assure yourselves of whether or not you have experienced the newness of God's grace, grace, the newness of regeneration. Three things you can look at. Number one, ask yourself, do you believe in the promises of God as they're set forth in Scripture? That's it. Do you believe in what Scripture says about salvation? For example, in Romans chapter 10, the Apostle Paul tells us, if you believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and confess with your mouth that Christ raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. That's all there is to it. Is that a promise that you cling to by faith? That is one ground of assurance that you can have. Likewise, look back on your life. Perhaps you don't have this radical conversion testimony, but looking back on your life, can you say that you've experienced the conviction and the calling and the comfort of the Holy Spirit? Can you look at the the, the valleys and the hills of your life and you can see how the Lord has sustained you through that and sanctified you through that? Because even through those experiences, we can experience the newness of God's grace. For example, I was recently reading the book of Lamentations. It's not the most uplifting book of the Bible, I'll admit that. If you know the background to the book of Lamentations, it's written by the, uh, the exiles, the, the citizens of Jerusalem, when the Babylonians had invaded, they've destroyed the city, they've destroyed the temple, they've carried off the inhabitants into captivity in Babylon. And now they're, to, uh, now they're having to adjust to a new life in a strange land. That's the context for the book of Lamentations. And we, we see lament after lament in this book. 
But then we get this glimmer of hope in the middle of the book. In Lamentations chapter 3, verses 21 through 23, we read, But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. We can experience the newness of God's grace on a daily basis. Think of what the Lord provides for you, the way he sustains you and protects you. This is the blessing that we have if we confess Christ as Lord. Thirdly, another thing that you can look at for assurance of salvation, ask if you are walking in accordance with God's commands. Do you pursue God's law? Do you seek his will? Do you try to honor his commandments? Because regeneration is a transformative experience. It makes a visible difference in the way that we live. Now, this does raise a possible objection. Isn't that legalism? Isn't that an attempt to ground God's grace in our obedience? It's not quite what I'm talking about, but that is a, that's a valid question to ask. And in fact, that brings me to my third and final point, looking at the nature of God's grace. Paul repeatedly emphasizes that grace is entirely God's work. And it has nothing to do with our own decision, our own effort, or our own worthiness. We read this in verses 8 through 10. Paul says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That's the nature of God's grace. I think as human beings, we have this, this natural inherent tendency to distort God's grace, to have a distorted view of what it really is. On the one hand, I think many of us are tempted to think that grace depends on obedience. But that's a mistake, and Paul clearly refutes that idea. If salvation depended upon our own input, then we would have something to boast about. I do think that this is the default setting of the human heart. We're just by nature moralists. We want to think that God accepts us because of how good we are. And that breeds this tendency to compare ourselves with other people. We're not as bad as that person or this person. So therefore, I'm a pretty decent person and God's going to accept me. Problem is, we're not comparing ourselves to the perfect standard of God's law when we do that. And when we look at the holiness of God, it reminds us that God's grace could never depend on our obedience because we would all fall short of that standard. On the other hand, I think many Christians have the tendency to think that grace completely disregards obedience. Uh, And and, and this is an understandable objection that a person might raise. They hear about the radical nature of God's grace and they wonder, why bother doing anything at all? Doesn't grace, the idea of God's radically free, unmerited favor towards us, open the door for inaction or complacency, justifying continuing in a life of unrepentant sin? Paul even anticipates this very same question in Romans chapter 6, where he says, Shall we go on sinning that grace may abound more? Well, let me first say that if your understanding of grace does not lead you to ask this question, it's possible that you haven't truly understood the radical nature of grace. People should raise this objection when they hear about a biblical view of grace. That shows that you get it. In fact, there is an English preacher by the name of Martin Lloyd-Jones who once said, there is no better test as to whether a man is really preaching the New Testament gospel of salvation than this. 
that some people might misunderstand it and misinterpret it to mean that it really amounts to this, that because you are saved by grace alone, it does not matter at all what you do. You can go on sinning as much as you like because it will redound all the more to the glory of grace. That is a very good test of gospel preaching. If my preaching and presentation of the gospel of salvation does not expose it to that misunderstanding, then it is not the gospel. So yes, if you appreciate the radical nature of God's grace, it may leave you open to that misunderstanding, to that objection. But we can't leave that objection unanswered because it is a misunderstanding of God's grace. You might be familiar with the story of William Carey. He was a famous missionary in England in the late 18th, uh, early 19th century. He's often called the father of modern missions. Uh, One of the first um, uh, leading Christians within the Western world to actually travel across the world to preach the gospel to an unreached people group. He went to India. He's known for translating the Bible into various languages, including uh, Arabic and Bengali and Hindi. He's also known for popularizing the phrase, the Great Commission, which is what we read about at the end of Matthew's Gospel, where the risen Jesus says, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. William Carey is also known for writing a book called An Enquiry into the Obligations of Christians to Use Means for the Conversion of the Heathens. See, a common objection that William Carey heard during his ministry from his fellow countrymen, fellow believers in England, was that, you know, God doesn't need you to convert the Indians. God can do that completely apart from you. Why are you bothering, you know, like sacrificing your time, your money, to try to go do that work when God is fully capable of doing that without you? And you know what? Here's the truth. God doesn't need us. God is perfectly capable, if he wanted to, of saving sinners completely apart from us. God does not depend on preachers and teachers like myself. If he wanted to, he could put me out of a job like that. He could send his Holy Spirit directly to each individual he wants to save to give them an encounter with his grace and transform him completely apart from the work of his church. But that's not how he does it. For reasons that are mysterious to us, that are hard for us to understand, he, he chooses and delights to use us as his instruments, ordaining not only the end, the salvation of his people, but also the means through the preaching of the word. The Apostle Paul also talks about that in Romans 10. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing comes by the word of God being preached. And in fact, these very means, these very purposes of God were established even before we were born. From the beginning of creation, that's the final thing that Paul says in this passage. Those good works that we perform as believers were were prepared by God well in advance that we should walk in them. We see this also in Philippians chapter 2 where Paul says, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works within you to will and to work according to his purpose. So it is grace that also provides the motivation for us to work. It is a mistake to say that grace depends on obedience. It is a mistake to say that grace disregards obedience. Instead, we should say that grace drives obedience. And it drives our obedience when we understand how costly that grace was. You can see this quote by Dietrich Bonhoeffer on the front of your bulletin which shows us just how costly grace comes to us. 
Look at the lengths that God has gone to in order to redeem us. The price that his son Jesus had to pay by suffering and dying on the cross. We read about this in in the hymn by Isaac Watts, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. The last portion of that song says, Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. See, when you truly understand God's grace, that's all the motivation you need to obey him. That's how we see in this scripture our need for grace and the newness of God's grace and the nature of God's grace for us. Radically free, but also radically costly. Please pray with me. Father God, we thank you for your grace. We know that we do not deserve it, but in spite of ourselves, you have chosen to redeem us at great cost to yourself. We know that your son Jesus had to die and pay the price for our sins on the cross so that we could be reconciled to you. And we thank you for that tremendous gift. I pray, God, that that truth would saturate our minds. It would saturate our hearts. I pray that we would never lose sight of the transforming power of your grace. I pray that we would walk in that truth each day by the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.